This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. Agitating for social change can be an exhausting endeavour, but for some people, it's not only a career choice, it's a lifelong passion. This is the case for my guest today, who, as the Chief Executive Officer of the Diversity Council of Australia, says she lives and breathes the push for equality. I'm Shirley Chowdhury, the host of the Women's Agenda podcast, The Leadership Lessons, which is made possible thanks to the generous support of Salesforce. I'm joined today by Lisa Innes, who sits at the helm of the Diversity Council of Australia, an organisation that delivers innovative diversity practice resources to businesses and supports them in improving their inclusion capability. In this chat, Lisa shares more about how she transitioned from a career in banking to one in the diversity and inclusion space, and why she's so thrilled to have found a job where she can be a professional feminist, as she so aptly calls it. Lisa, welcome to the Leadership Lessons podcast. It's so nice to have you here. I'd like to start by acknowledging that I'm on Camaragal land and I pay my deep respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging for their ongoing care and love of this country and custodianship. Lisa, you're the CEO of the Diversity Council of Australia. Some people out there may not have heard of DCA. Can you tell us what you do? So the Diversity Council Australia is a not-for-profit, non-government member organisation that's been around for well over 30 years And what it does is it works with employers in Australia to improve their capability in diversity and inclusion across the whole spectrum of diversity dimensions, including gender, culture and race, age, disability, LGBTIQ plus identity, First Nations identity, disability, and all of their intersections as well. And we do a lot of our own research and use an evidence framework to support our members who are all organisations to improve their business by getting better at tapping into the diversity of their workforce and potential workforce and creating inclusive environments for those individuals. And to give you a sense of the scale of the coverage, we have well over 900 organisations who are our members. In total, they cover, by way of their headcount, over 20% of the Australian labour market. And they include Australia's biggest ASX-listed companies. They include government departments. 30% of our members are multinational organisations. We have universities, professional services firms, think tanks, NGOs, and across every industry as well. So the work that we do is highly influential in terms of assisting organisations improve their capacity in this area. That's encouraging to hear that you have so many of the big organisations and part of the labour force involved in what you're doing. It tells me that actually it's high on their agenda and it's important. It is high on their agenda and it is important to most organisations. I think one of the big differences that I've seen in the time I've been working in this space is that for most of the committed organisations and certainly our members, we don't really have to rehash the business case about why you need to do this. That's understood. Having said that, our members, again, 
take up 20% of the labour market. So there's 80% of organisations who are not our members, many of whom are probably also committed, but there are still lots of organisations for whom um, maybe they haven't considered diversity and inclusion, maybe they don't understand that it can be like a superpower to help you improve your performance as an organisation. So there are still opportunities there to influence. You talked about the research that you've done and you do a lot of research internally at DCA. I'd like to talk specifically about some of that research because I think it's so fascinating. One report that you've issued just very recently said that half of all male carers experience exclusion in the workplace when they come back to work. That actually rang really true for me. So I used to work in a team where when the men took their three weeks paternity leave, they'd come back after the three weeks and they'd be asked how their holiday was. And they'd get a lot of flack for taking that time off. Tell us what you found in that report, because I think this is a really important statistic, not just for men, but for women, because we need men to share the load and to help with the caring responsibilities. And it makes it very hard if they're being one excluded and then if there's a stigma attached to them doing that. Yeah, so the findings around men and flexibility are part of a larger piece of work that we do every two years, our inclusion index, which we will be launching the full report in November. And we measure inclusion empirically. It's not just a vague sense of belonging in an organisation. It does include that, but it's about opportunity and contribution and um, respectful work environments. And what we are finding with men is that Yes, there is stigma associated with caring and with accessing flexibility in order to be a carer. However, that stigma has been in place for women for a long period of time. It's a different kind of stigma in the sense that women as carers and especially as carers of children is within the stereotype of our gender and gender expectations of what it means to be a woman, especially a mother. And so in terms of the impact for women in the workplace, traditionally it's been around you can access the flex, you can take parental leave, but your career is going to suffer. So we're finding that that's part of the issue with men is that they're experiencing the same kind of exclusion because exclusion includes looking at what happens to careers and what happens to opportunities and we're finding the same thing. But there's an added component and that is that because we traditionally don't view men as carers, even though there's no biological reason why men can't be good carers, especially in a binary relationship. And so what we're finding is that when men behave in a way that outside the stereotype for their gender, that they're met with stigma. And they're met with stigma not just within the workplace, they're met with stigma in their social groups, they're viewed with suspicion, you know, their masculinity is called into question. And that's a problem. It's a problem for a couple of reasons. It's a problem, especially if they're in heterosexual relationships with women, because that impacts the woman's ability to fully participate in the workplace, because obviously caring for children is the most important thing you can do in a family structure or a family system. But it's also problematic because men miss out. And we've done a piece of research 
called Engaging Men on Gender Equality and where we are able to demonstrate that there are significant benefits for men in terms of, you know, leaning into their caring responsibilities. There are benefits to their well-being and mental health. There are benefits to their relationships with their children. Um, there are benefits to their whole of human experience. And that's important to them as human beings. I mean, one of my frustrations in this space is that it's constantly presented as though diversity and inclusion is a bad thing for men or the empowerment of women somehow disadvantages men. And this is a particular trope that's pulled out by men's rights activists. And actually, there's no evidence to support that. Actually, the problems that men face in their life, breakdown of relationships, lack of engagement with children, high-risk-taking behaviour, serious consequences as a result of mental health issues, suicidal ideation and risk, the solution to that is actually a feminist agenda. That's not the cause. The cause are these narrow definitions of what it means to be a man. And that I find very frustrating because it's an emotional response with no basis in fact or evidence. You've been the CEO now since 2014, Lisa. Have you seen an evolution in thinking on that topic? I mean, obviously, we've got more companies talking about paternal leave, we've got, you know, miscarriage policies now and miscarriage leave in some areas, including government. I've interviewed people on this podcast who've talked about menopause leave and period leave. I mean, we're seeing a evolution in the workplace. But what's the evolution you're seeing with the companies you've been working with through the lens of DCA? I think that there is definitely a move forward in terms of this becoming more and more a mainstream conversation and organisations recognising that actually they should be gender neutral when it comes to things like parental leave. They should be gender neutral and universal when it comes to applying flexibility. And that's actually an important aspect of making it work for women is to create a universality about it. So the leading practice organisations are definitely on that journey and that's continuing to gain momentum. But it's still not widespread enough in the Australian labour market. It's not widespread enough and we know it's not widespread enough because we're only seeing it at the pointy end of sort of really large and best practice leading organisations. So we've still got a way to go but we are moving in the right direction. Are there countries out there that we can point to where you can say that's how we should do it or are there elements of different countries that we should be thinking of pulling together? Well, the difficulty in drawing comparisons between Australia and other countries. And so, for example, the the model of shared care parental leave is a model that's been in place for decades in Scandinavian countries. The challenge with it is that we don't examine that critically enough. And what I mean by that is we did a piece of work called Let's Share the Care. And we did that as a preamble to a larger piece of work we did on the economics of the gender pay gap. And what we discovered was that in Australia, having the shared care parental leave model is great, but we don't have a comparable childcare system to the Northern European countries. And actually, if you really unpack the research and look at it, what you find is that it's not actually men doing a lot more childcare. Um, What it is is that the state has picked up the burden. It's invested heavily into a socialised early childhood system. And that has enabled men and women to share the care with respect to work and parental leave. And because we don't have that kind of structure in Australia, individual organisations are 
your experience of being able to share the care will depend on what company you work for. So we would love to move to a place where we had socialised early childhood education. So, you know, recognise that children really benefit from early childhood intervention and recognise that actually our societies used to be structured in a less nuclear family kind of way, more as a community, and that's actually really good for children. But the individualistic system of addressing it in Australia is never going to deliver the outcomes you get in Northern Europe because of those differences. Yeah, it's a really interesting point because we don't ever look deeper than just saying Scandinavia has a great system. Lisa, earlier when you were talking about the types of diversity and inclusion that DCA talks about, they were all things that people that would regularly pop to mind when people think of diversity and inclusion. But one of the reports that I saw on your website that I've read and I was honestly really struck by is the Class at Work report. Because we don't often enough think about socioeconomic background and socioeconomic class as an inhibitor to entry in the workforce or as a barrier to getting ahead. Can you tell us a little bit about that report and the findings? Well, I'm really proud of that piece of work and it's the first of its kind in Australia. There have been other pieces of work that look at social class, but they view it in terms of social outcomes. This is the first piece of work that looks at social class through an employment angle and employment lens and looks at the experience of inclusion and exclusion at work through the the lens of social class. It was important for me to do it because I was trying to understand a few things. And one of those things is there's this vague conversation that happens around, you know, in inverted commas, privilege, without anyone trying to define what privilege means. But then I also noticed that in often the conversations that I had around gender equity and racial justice, that there is a view amongst members of our community that they are part of an oppressing class. And they're part of that oppressing class because, for example, they might be white men. And their argument is, but I'm not oppressing anyone. I'm poor. I'm working class. I'm struggling to make ends meet. And therefore, there's a rejection of this idea that the problem is actually a gender equality problem or a racial justice problem. And I wanted to explore that a bit further. And the results were really, really striking. What the class of work report showed was that more than any other aspect of someone's identity, your social class, and that social class we defined using a definition that's well understood in the UK with the UK civil service especially, is a composite of fixed components like your family of birth, the family wealth and position they have, the networks that family has and your education, and then movable things such as your profession and your income and networks that might change throughout your life. Lisa, let me stop you there for a sec because there are going to be people who are listening who say immediately that Australia is a classless society. You know, we started from convicts because that's where they think we started. We started way earlier than that, of course. But we have this mentality in our heads that actually this is a community of battlers and we're all on the same level and there is no class. Britain has class, but we don't. Clearly that's wrong. Well, Britain certainly has a formal class structure because they have aristocracy. They have people with titles. And the other thing in Britain that denotes class is accent really strongly in a way that it doesn't in Australia. But our report shows actually that class is very much at play. And you know what? 
even though people say we're classless, if you ask a follow-up question, everyone knows that that's not true. Everyone knows that your privilege, it's an unearned advantage and some people have it and other people don't have it. It's not to say that people who come from working classes or lower classes can't succeed, but there's no question that our report revealed that more than any other aspect of your identity, your social class determines your experience of inclusion or exclusion at work. There's no denying that the leaders in Australia make up a very small group of individuals who are most likely to have had more privileged upbringings and had private school educated and particular family systems. And the interesting thing with our class at work report was that there was a gender difference. So women of all classes supported diversity and inclusion, whereas only men from the higher class supported diversity and inclusion. And that is because of this narrative, I believe, that just because you're a white man, it means you have privilege. And what white men who are working class know and understand is actually their class excludes them from things. And this is a problem because it means you're not able to fully maximise your talent pool for for all the the reasons that diversity and inclusion strategies um, are important. But it's also a question of tactics because if you are trying to engage, say, for example, straight white men and bring them on this journey of diversity and inclusion and you're telling them that they're part of the oppressive group of people and they don't feel like they have any power or privilege, they're not going to listen to anything else that you have to say. Women and men of lower classes are equally excluded and actually what our research will find that when you have overlapping identities of intersection, so if you have from a lower class with a disability, you're a person of colour, that amplifies your exclusion, for example. The gender difference is that women of all classes support diversity and inclusion and only men of higher classes support it and that middle to lower classes don't. And that for me is around the messaging of how we have had this conversation about diversity and inclusion in Australia. And it makes sense. If you're told all the time that you have privilege but you have no power, it makes yeah, sense. Yeah, you have no power because you're poor. And, and, and the other thing to say about that is, it is probably also true, and we look. This is just the, our first go at a look at class, so we plan on doing something that goes deeper. But it's also probably true that men in lower classes and working classes are probably working in organisations and industries that are not as committed to diversity and inclusion. So they're not experiencing the benefits of diversity and inclusion because what our DNI index also shows is that there's actually when an organisation focuses on DNI, there's no gender difference between the experience of inclusion, even if that organisation is only focusing on women. Men also experience benefits at an equal pace, and the only two groups that continue to persist in exclusion are people with disabilities and First Nations people. So it is very, very interesting. But I think what's important is it's about tactics as much as it is about understanding that socioeconomic classes as a dimension in themselves can add a different way of thinking. So if somebody's listening, Lisa, and they work in a company where, you know, they're selling products, for example, to a broad range, their target audience is broad, how do they start to think about expanding their workplace, expanding the benefits of their workplace to a broader group of people, whether that be 
you know, LGBTIQ or women or class, whatever it is, all those different lenses of diversity, what's the first step for not one of the bigger companies because they have resources, but a smaller company that's trying to do it? What would you suggest? My first suggestion is for them to ask the question, why? Why do we want to do this? Rather than reacting to social movements or just responding you know, from the hip to shareholder, customer, staff pressure, take a step back and say, why is it important for our organisation to have a commitment to diversity and inclusion? What is the business case for our organisation? How will we benefit? Because if you cannot articulate that, you have no hope in designing any program that will ever be successful. You won't be able to bring your stakeholders on the journey. You won't achieve any success in that. That is the absolute first step is work out what is the business reason for you to be. And if you can't think of a business reason, that's probably because you're not thinking broadly enough because there are many, many business reasons. But you've got to articulate it in a way that makes sense for your workplace because change in this space is really hard and you meet a lot of resistance and you need to be able to explain why company X has a focus now on this particular aspect. And if your only answer is, well, we just think because everyone else is or it's the right thing to do or we're getting regulatory pressure to do it, what I'm saying is go deeper than that and try and actually work out how will this add value to your business. And if you spend enough time doing that, that's the first step. But to take that one step further and doing it because of the right, it is the right thing to do is not a bad place to start, is it? It's not a bad place to start. But if that is your only argument, you'll find change difficult because you have to bring key stakeholders on the journey to create the change. I believe it's the right thing to do. Obviously, this is why I'm committed to it wholeheartedly. But what I'm interested in is how do you set organisations up for success? And the more they can articulate, okay, it's the morally right thing to do, and it might be because this will foster goodwill within our customers and we want to appeal to more customers or it's because it reduces our risk. Um, But whatever it is, you've got to go a bit deeper than the moral case. I believe you need both, the moral case and the business case, and the organisations that have success have both. And so this is about aligning the needs of stakeholders, essentially, shareholders, employees, staff, customers, aligning those interests and then working out in addition to the moral case why the business needs to do this. Yes, why the business needs to do it. And then going through a process of appropriate design, identifying your key stakeholders, building capability and being considered, taking an evidence framework. A lot of organisations spend a lot of time and energy, spend a lot of money on activities that create no change. In order to focus on activities that create change, then you really have to use all the principles of transformational change management. And it's interesting that organisations do that for so many projects, but not for this one, and they underestimate the complexity massively. Cultural change is the hardest type of change. Lisa, why do you care so much individually? Turning now to your personal story, why do you care so much? I just think it's my DNA to care so much. I I can't think of a time when I didn't. I think when I was really little, I was always obsessed with things being fair. And I can never remember a time when I wasn't passionate about gender 
equality. That's my, probably my primary driving force. And it's funny because I, um, I didn't grow up in an oppressive family or anything like that. Although perhaps something I have in common with a lot of other feminists is I had a very, very strong relationship with my father, who was himself, by any objective measure, a feminist, even though he wouldn't understand what the word meant. And that's something that's quite common amongst um, women who pursue careers in this space. So that's interesting. I suppose the other thing is that I grew up in Australia at a time when I have I'm from a culturally and linguistically diverse background and I grew up, you know, in the 70s and the 80s in Australia and we were the only ethnic family in the community that we grew up in. I grew up in Sydney's um, Sutherland Shire. If anyone knows what the Shire was like in the 70s and the 80s, you just have to imagine puberty blues and that's where I grew up. But you know what? It It was hostile. Using quite derogatory language, it was hostile. Um, in terms of you're an outsider because you were, you were, and I'll you know trigger warning for people who don't like the word, but you know being called a wog all the time, and that has a, that has an imprint on you. Now, even though my background is European, um, and we know that racism happens the more visibly different you are, we also know it changes over time. So even though now people with European backgrounds are part of the majority culture um, and it's other waves of migration that experience that kind of exclusion, I think it leaves an imprint on you that is hard to shake off. So it's probably a combination of those things. The other things came later because I didn't have awareness of issues for people who are LGBTIQ+. I didn't have awareness of issues for First Nations people. That stuff came through education. Hmm. Lisa, given your passion in this area then, did you plan this career this way or was it serendipity or was it a little bit of opportunism? I didn't plan it at the beginning because I didn't know you could be a professional feminist and I I didn't know you could do it for a job um, unless you were a great writer or an artist. And I admire a lot of great writers and artists, but unfortunately I don't have the talent <laughs> to be a great writer or an artist. And so I didn't know how to forge a career. And also I come from a migrant family where the concept of academic idealism is not valued because, you know, my sister became a doctor. You do a sensible job that is the you know, a profession. And I went into banking, you know, normal, you know, reliable job. You can earn money kind of thing. Um, and I hated it. But it was useful because obviously now as a CEO, you actually need to know how to read balance sheets and PLs and so all that stuff's really practical. So, um, so initially it was definitely serendipity. There was an opportunity for me because when I started working professionally, in the 90s, you know, the Sex Discrimination Act had been passed 10 years earlier. Organisations had started to respond to the change. And so all of a sudden, these job opportunities that were jobs that never existed before started to exist. And that's how I transitioned. Although I'm not much of a planner. And I know there are people who are, 
you've got to have your two-year goal, your five-year goal. I don't have any of those goals. But I think we're seeing that, you know, in all the guests we've had on the podcast, more and more people are just saying I was in the right time, right place at the right time or I knew somebody or that job led to that job. Like there are very few planners out there who've planned their whole career. Life just doesn't work like that, unfortunately. No, and I think, but I think in this space I think it's got to be in your DNA because it's a really hard space to work in and you're always up against it because you're always agitating for change and so you've got to have certain attributes about your personality which you're comfortable with having so you've got to be comfortable with being a little bit difficult you've got to be comfortable with being the person at the dinner party who will take umbrage with something that might be sexist and that's me and doesn't necessarily make me popular but it's effective to work in this space because you are having to always be the person who's trying to point out where something might be not quite right and maybe offer a solution about how it could move in the, in the right way. Lisa does that get eggs I mean you've talked a little bit about how hard this space is to be in does that get exhausting does it wear you down do you have to draw on your resilience more often than you might in other sectors or roles? Well, because for me it's more a vocation than a job, I would live and breathe it even when I don't work. So this is just part of my life. So I'm actively involved in a whole bunch of causes. Um, I sit on other boards. So I live and breathe this stuff. I think I'm a naturally resilient person. But, yeah, I do have to draw on, if, if nothing else, than just to share the experience of how challenging things can be sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Lisa, we're talking, one of the themes that we're exploring on this podcast series is what our workplace looks like in 10 years' time and, you know, the leadership qualities and the things we need to change to get us there. If you were designing a workplace for the next decade, Given the work that you do, what are some of the things that you would like to see happen? I would like to see a world of work where we had where we had gender equity, certainly in leadership, and that's not just in business, in politics and in other institutions. I'd like to see workplaces abide by their commitments to create respectful environments or at least doing their best and holding people accountable when they're not being respectful. I'd like to see the gender pay gap close. I'd like to see women not treated as a homogenous group. I'd like to see more diversity within groups, other aspects of people's identity, their racial and cultural background, all of those sorts of things. I'd I'd love to see cultural protocols around First Nations peoples embedded and genuine commitment to diversity and inclusion, which is mainstream. And I suppose more important than anything, I just don't want to see this area politicised anymore. It's so politicised and it's not political. The fact that it is politicised as though this is all about you know, political correctness gone mad. It's so unhelpful. I think that'd be nice to have a, a world of work where, where those conversations weren't happening anymore. Doesn't sound like you've got much on your plate. <laughs> yeah, but I love it. I live and breathe it. That's great. And I think, you know, for everybody listening, um, I imagine everybody can identify with the vision of the future that you have. And there's a little bit of comfort knowing that you're leading DCA and doing the work you're doing to get us there. Thank you, Lisa, for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Shirley. 
We've spent quite a lot of time in our weekly podcasts talking about inclusion and diversity. Every one of our guests has focused on DNI in some way, and we've discussed diversity in all its guises. Diversity of culture, thought, experience, LGBTIQ+, disability, multicultural, and more. But speaking to Lisa took us to another level, I think. Lisa is totally embedded in the diversity and inclusion space. She spends her days working with companies to make them better. And she forces us to think even more broadly about diversity, including about socioeconomic diversity, an area that I suspect we need to focus on a lot more. Thanks so much for joining us today for this episode, which was brought to you through the generosity of Salesforce. It was produced, as always, by the very capable and talented Alison Ho, and the adjoining article in Women's Agenda was written by Madeline Bissell. You can subscribe to Women's Agenda at womensagenda.com.au and enjoy it in your inbox every weekday. We would welcome your comments and feedback, and you can reach out to Women's Agenda or me, Shirley Chowdhury, anywhere on social media. We'll be back with you next week with another very special guest. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.